Welcome to Mishpocha. I'm Rabbi Eric Carlson, and welcome to part two of Motivation. Galatians chapter 1, 1, and verses 15 and 16. From Shaul, an emissary, I received my commission not from human beings or through human meditation, but through Yeshua the Messiah and God the Father who raised him from the dead and also from all the brothers with me. But when God, who picked me out before I was born and called Kalea, which means commanded, ordered, called, to be called by name, to bear a title, he called me by his grace, chose to reveal his son to me so that I might announce to him the Gentiles, I did not consult anyone. Now, are, are you get this? Paul Shaul here established here in verses 15 and 16. He, he tells us in verse 1 that this calling isn't from human beings. It is divine. It's supernatural. But he says in verses 15 and 16 that he did this when he was still in the womb, that he has a specific divine heavenly calling. Another translation of kaleo in the Greek that I particularly like is vocation. Every believer has a vocation, a calling, a kaleo in the kingdom of God, either professional or voluntary, part-time. A vocation consists of skill sets coupled with a service to others in God. We're talking about the infusion of heavenly giftings upon you to fulfill that vocation, that calling God. Every person, even those who deny God, who say they're atheists, they are still created by him. And in the womb, they were given a set of vocation skills, a kaleo, a calling to serve him. Free will is the most vexing thing in the kingdom of God. They're choosing not to do this, but every one of you have a divine, supernatural, specific gift that was given to you, a calling, a kaleo, a vocation that was put inside you, inside your mother's womb. This is profound. King David said in Psalms 22, verses 9 through 10, but you are the one who took me from the womb. You made me trust when I was on my mother's breast. Since my birth, I've been thrown on you. You are my God from my mother's womb. How profoundly insightful. This is deep calling unto deep. This is further clarified and expanded in Psalms 139, verses 13 through 16. It says, for you fashioned my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. My inmost being, he fashioned your soul, your spirit. God gave you all this inside your mother's womb. Verse 14, I thank you because I am awesomely made, wonderfully. Your works are wonders. I know this very well. Verse 15, my bones were not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven into the depths of the earth. Verse 16, your eyes could see me as an embryo, but in your book, all my days were already written. My days have been shaped before any of them existed. This is a supernatural scripture. Listen, you're calling, your kaleo, this vocation, this isn't a Brit Hadashah, a New Testament concept alone. Every person has a divine calling, a heavenly vocation that's assigned to you as you're being knit together in your mother's womb before you were born. And listen, as we're coming into the fall feast here, your days were already recorded in the Sefer HaChaim, the book of life, before you were born, not when you get saved. Accepting Yeshua determines if your name stays in that book or gets blotted out. Listen to what Adonai said to Jeremiah in Yirmiyahu 1 verse 5. He said, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I separated you for myself. I sanctified you. I justified you. I have appointed Natan, appoint, assigned, charged, ordained, called, designate, commit, or charged you to be a prophet to the nations. 
Wow, that is so supernatural. But as we've read through all these scriptures, all of us have had the same calling, appointing, uh, assignment, charge, ordination, this uh, kaleo, this call upon us in our mother's wombs before we were born. Adonai separated, he sanctified, he called Jeremiah even before he formed him in his mother's womb. He knew him, he called out to him. Our mistake today is that we, for the most part, are not raised or raising our children. We send them to school. We pick their career. We find a job that will make them a nice, comfortable living and pay the bills. Meanwhile, walking through life unaware or unconcerned about callings upon our lives. Listen, this is critical. You must know the vocation, the calling, the kaleo that God has upon you is the greatest single most motivator for you personally in the kingdom of God. Next, we have to have a clear congregational vision that motivates a rabbi, a pastor who can lay out a clear vision and can comprehensively communicate it clearly will produce people that are motivated to be part of the congregation, to be part of that vision. People want to know where you're going. And if they understand where you're going and why, they will submit. They will come under your covering and your vision, and they will go with you. Motivation builds congregations that work together, building a true unity of one mind, one purpose, one focus in agreement for the plans and purposes of the kingdom of God. This is the very essence of the one new man of Jew and Gentile, working together as one, as one fluid body. We've had hundreds, if not thousands of people come to us here in Congregation Zion's sake over the years. They say, Rabbi, Rabitzin, oh man, we're with you. We agree with you. We stand with you. But they're not in collaboration with us. They're in cooperation. They agree with us, but they're not actively involved with us. Those who collaborate come here every week, week after week. They place their tithes and offerings here. They come for prayer. They're here at every event. They volunteer for events and outreaches. They associate with the House of Israel. Do you see the difference between the two? We're leaving the period of having one foot in one camp and the other foot in the other camp. When, when someone's in cooperation with you, they're not putting their resources behind you. When they're in collaboration with you, they're in joint unity, working in partnership with you. There are changes needed to become a collaborative type of player instead of a person who is in cooperation. The first point of this is perception. One has to see teammates differently. We're, we're, we're seeing them as collaborators, not as competitors. Ephesians 4, verses 2 through 4, always be humble, gentle, and patient, bearing with one another in love. Verse 3, and making every effort to preserve the unity the Spirit gives through the binding power of shalom. Remember that word, complex Hebrew word, the absence of conflict for national uh, unity and peace. There is one body and one spirit. Just as when you were called, you were called to one hope. And so this is why we we work so diligently to tear down the separation between Jew and Gentile because there's not a Jewish body and a Gentile body. There's one body and one spirit. Attitude to become a collaborator. We need to be supportive, not suspicious of those who you're working with, because if you trust others, you'll treat them differently. You'll treat them better. There also must be complete, unrestricted trust and loving God, like the faith of the patriarchs, that we shall see what's been promised, even though it has not yet occurred. Philippians 2 verse 5 says, let your attitude toward one another be governed by your being in union with the Messiah. 
To be a collaborator, we need focus. A collaborative type of team player concentrates on the team, not self. This is so critical to deny the flesh. Selfishness can stop the momentum of the move, and it kills motivation. The hardest aspect of a great team player is to overcome selfishness, which is why Paul warns us to crucify the flesh every day. It's not about you. It's not about me. Focus has to be removed from self and be placed on the team and the move of God and what he is doing in this hour. Galatians 5, starting at verse 22, says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patient, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. Verse 23, humility, self-control. Nothing in the Torah stands against such things. Moreover, those who belong to the Messiah have put their old nature to death on the stake. They have crucified their flesh along with its passions and desires. Verse 25, since it is through the Spirit that we have life, let it also be through the Spirit that we order our lives day by day. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. Next results to be a collaborative player. Listen, I shared this a couple of weeks ago. My Katrina story, they wouldn't have survived without each other down there. After this post-Katrina, the largest hurricane that had ever hit America, Labor Day of 2005, I was so intrigued by a pastor's meeting, a luncheon that had 150 pastors, I had to ask, how could this possibly be? And because they pulled me aside and said, have a Katrina. In time of national calamity and crisis, they quickly understood that they wouldn't be able to survive without each other. The supernatural requires collaborative help. All believers must learn to come together, to cross these barriers we put up about denominations and cultural and color. Collaboration will accomplish the vision that cooperation would never allow. Philippians 2, verses 1 through 5, it says, Therefore, if you have any encouragement for me from your being in union with the Messiah, any comfort flowing from love, any fellowship with me in the Spirit, or any compassion and sympathy, then complete my joy by having a common purpose and a common love by being in one heart and one mind. Do nothing out of rivalry or vanity, but humility. Regard each other as better than yourselves. This is a collaborative team. Look out for each other's interests and not just for your own, verse 4. Verse 5, let your attitude toward one another be governed by your being in union with the Messiah, Yeshua. Those are some areas that take us from cooperation to collaboration and to see the mission finished to reach the goal. Let's get back to motivation. Motivation provides examples for others. Yeshua said, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men in Matthew 4.19. Paul Shaul said in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, try to imitate me, even as I myself try to imitate the Messiah. He said in 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 7, for you yourselves know you must imitate us, follow us, that we are not idle when we were among you. These verses reveal the power of, of example. It creates a tremendous motivational impact on others when they see, witness, and experience the transformative power of God and his blessings working through you. What we desire to manifest in the lives of others must first be witnessed and experienced in our own life. Next, we have to have esprit de corps. This is the only French term you'll ever hear me use. It describes a spirit of a body of persons, a group spirit, a sense of pride and honor. When a team or congregation experiences this higher spiritual unity and sense of dedication to its purpose, the more it motivates its members to make an impact and succeed. 
Esprit de corps takes time, but one who is wise will make it a priority to do so. This was a critical factor when I was in the military. You could immediately tell when you got to a crew or got to a command and they did not have Esprit de corps. They were divisive, they were fractured, and they couldn't get the mission done. They often failed their inspections. It's a horrible sight to see. But the wise leader who would build this among the troops, who build this among the sailors, the wise one who would do this and build Esprit de corps in the congregation they will make a profound supernatural place that's making an impact, and it will succeed. Again, esprit de corps takes time, but one who is wise will make it a priority to do so. And this is done by leading your team or congregation to a place of clarity, a place where they clearly see the impact, the value, and kingdom purpose of what they are doing, that they're part of something bigger, that they're making a positive change for good, that the kingdom of God is expanding, that people's lives are being transformed. Once esprit de corps is established, it generates its own momentum. Yet it requires strong, focused leadership to keep it in balance and keep it going. Listen, after Peter and John were arrested, then released in Acts chapter 4, the group of Talmudim gained great esprit de corps and motivation. In Acts 4, starting at verse 29, it says, So now, Lord, take note of their threats. They were released, the Talmudim, they couldn't believe it. And so now they're coming together and they're praying and they say, So now, Lord, take note of their threats and enable your slaves to speak your message with boldness. Verse 30, stretch out your hand to heal and to do signs and miracles through the name of your holy servant, Yeshua. And while they were still praying, verse 31, the place where they were gathered was shaken. This is, this is a second upper room experience. They were all filled with the Ruach HaKodesh, with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke God's message with boldness. And all the many believers were in one heart and soul, and no one claimed any of his possessions for himself, but everyone shared everything he had. Verse 33, with great power. With great power, the emissaries continued testifying to the resurrection of the Lord Yeshua, and they were all held in high regard. This minor little victory, they stood at the face of adversity. They were accused. If you remember, they told the Sanhedrin, should we follow you or follow God? And they were bold. And in their release, it brought such great motivation that they moved forth in supernatural power. They're of one mind, one heart. You talk about a collaborative team here being built. This is really supernatural. I just love this scripture. Next, motivation requires exhortation. To exhort is to strongly encourage or urge someone to do something. Shaul, Paul, he exhorted Timothy. 2 Timothy 1, verse 6, For this reason I am reminding you to fan the flame of God's gift, which you receive through shmicha by the laying on of hands from me. A good leader routinely exhorts others, both individually and corporately, towards the vision and the goal, their destiny. Doing so will earn their loyalty and their commitment to you and the vision. But don't overdo it or it becomes condescending. Next, you have to recognize someone's contribution. That motivates. People need to have their contributions recognized and appreciated. It's not enough to expect them to receive appreciation from Adonai alone. They have to know that what they are doing is making a difference and that they are part of the team's greater success. People need to know of their value and gifts in the congregation or a team. Shaul Paul, again, gives us a perfect example in Philippians 2, verses 19 through 20. He said, but I hope in the Lord Yeshua to send Timothy to you shortly so that I too may be cheered by knowing how you are doing. I have no one who compares with him who will care so sincerely for your welfare. Did you hear what he's saying here? He says, man, I'm hoping to send you Timothy. He says, I have no one who compares. This is his number one guy. He says, this is the guy who will care sincerely for your welfare. 
Verse 21, it says, people all put their own interests ahead of the Messiah Yeshua. But you know, verse 22, his character, the like a child with his father, he slave with me to advance the good news. What a profound exhortation and encouragement. I'm sure Timothy read this and, wow, he's making a difference. This is It encourages me and I'm not Timothy. He, he, he says people all put their own interests ahead of the Messiah, but not this guy. Timothy, he wholeheartedly, like a child, slaves to advance the good news in the kingdom of God. Paul did it again in Philemon 1 verse 5. He says, I thank my God every time. I mention you in my prayers, Philemon, for I am hearing about your love and commitment to the Lord Yeshua and to all God's people. He's acknowledging their impact, what Philemon is doing. Shaul, Paul routinely recognizes smoke appreciation for others. This undoubtedly helps to further motivate those who are working to advance the kingdom of God. Next, success motivates. There's no greater motivation than a win, than a success. Wise leaders will routinely review the success of the ministry with co-laborers and with the congregation to celebrate achieved goals and victories. Celebration of a success provides greater motivation to continue on and meet the next challenge or giant like David's victory. Listen, one of the greatest things we did here as a congregation, I've shared this before, is when the National Socialist Movement of America, the American Nazis, came to um, march and protests at Surrender Field here at Yorktown, Virginia, where Cornwallis surrendered to George Washington in October 1781. There's not a more gelling, a more congregation-building thing than to come together, do something like this, and CNN reported live, we won. The, the Nazis delved into anarchy and just started knocking the tar out of each other. And on their side, the, the uh, park department and all the police forces just disbanded them and made them go home. And they come back to us and said, Rabbi, you guys won. I said, no, we didn't win. God gave us the victory. All we did was worship. That was one of the most profound moments in our history as a congregation. It's what really gelled us together as one to know that we can do all things through him who gives us the victory through Messiah Yeshua. It's like David's victories in 1 Samuel 17, verses 16 through 27. David was sent by his father to check on his brothers who were fighting against the Philistines and this giant known as Goliath. And David, when he, when he gets to the, the battlefield, said to the men standing with him, what reward will be given to the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine anyways that he challenges the armies of the living God? The people answered with what they had been saying, adding, that's what will be done for the man who kills him. But Eliab, verse 28, David's oldest brother heard when David spoke to the men, and it made Eliab angry at him. He asked, why did you come down here? With whom did you leave those few sheep in the desert? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You just came down to watch the fighting. You know, I got to pause here. This is ultimately about motivation. But here's something I've learned over the years. When there's a need and no one's filling it, if you rise up to the challenge in the hour, immediately the critics will come forth. Nehemiah, when he goes back and begins a restorative process of the walls and the gates of Jerusalem, when it was rubble and disbanded, nobody cared. But the minute he started doing the work of God, he was challenged. The Depiuses come out of the desert and start challenging why he's doing this, calling him out to the plain of Ono. And they had to continue building with a brick in one hand and a sword in the other. When you rise up to fulfill your destiny and your calling, you will be challenged. Here, here's David's brother. All he did was ask, hey, what's going on here? And, and he answers, I know you, how conceited you are, how wicked your heart. Really? 
You just came down to watch the fighting? Verse 29, David said, what have I done now? I only ask a question. He turned away from him to someone else and asked the same question, and the people gave him the same answer. David's words were overheard and told to King Saul, who summoned him. And here's the key. David said to Saul, no one should lose heart because of him. Your servant will go and fight this Philistine. Saul said to David, you can't go fight this Philistine. You're just a boy. He's been a warrior from his youth. But David answers in verse 34, he answers Saul, your servant used to guard his father's sheep. When a lion or bear would come and grab a lamb from the flock, I would go after it, hit it, and snatch the lamb from its mouth. And if it turned on me, I would catch it by the jaw, smack it, and kill it. Your servant has defeated both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has challenged the armies of the living God. Then David said, Adonai, who rescued me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, will rescue me from the paw of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go, may Adonai be with you. You know the rest of the story. But what a motivation. What motivated David to do this? Because he'd already been through similar scenarios, and the Lord had taken him through every one of them. Mishpochah, it doesn't matter what challenge, it doesn't matter what mountain you're climbing, it doesn't matter what giant you're facing, I want you to know today that he who created you in the womb, who knew you as an embryo, planted his calling, his divine destiny upon you, and that with him all things are possible, that you are a super conqueror, that you are an overcomer, and that his motivation of the Most High God will carry you through any situation, any pandemic, any civil unrest, and you will see the light and the glory and the blessings of the God Most High of Israel, who will forever keep you, protect you, and defend you. I pray that you may be motivated to fulfill your heavenly kaleo, your calling, and be all that God has called you to be in Yeshua's name. Amen. Amen.